0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show today. Um, every now and then I have a guest that uh, I'm not uh, real familiar with. Um, as I did a little digging on my my guest today, I found out that he's been attached to a few projects that I'm very familiar with, and I'm pretty sure you guys, um, when you hear us talk about them, you will have a familiarity also. A gentleman's named John D. Hancock. Um, he is a writer, director, producer. Uh, guys, he's done it all started when he was just twenty two years old with his directorial debut. Gentleman's now eighty two years old and he's still going strong sixty years later. Um he was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh he now still resides there. Uh as he uh as his career we don't want to say it's fading out because like I said he's still going strong. So uh he's based out of the Kansas City area. He uh when he went to college he graduated from Harvard University. Uh, He also continued his theatrical studies in Europe with a grant from Harvard. And um, like I said, after he got his start at 22 years old, uh, he had quite a few projects. Uh, He is uh, best known, or one of the projects he's best known for, is a movie he made very early in his career called Bang the Drum Slowly. Um, It is a real buddy movie. It's one guy being there for another guy, you know, uh, with some real adversity in that gentleman's life. And it's set to a backdrop of baseball. Um, He had an opportunity. He's had an opportunity to work with uh, some of the absolute uh, theatrical and Hollywood type um, just heavy hitters of their day. And uh, like I said, we talk a little bit about all of that. Um, He in 1968. He directed Shakespeare's A, Midnight's, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and he won an Obie Award for that for Distinguished Director for that 67-68 season. He's, like I said, done everything. Uh, there's, there's nothing he hasn't uh, been involved with. He's worked in both film and theater. Um, he's even attached to one of the Jaws franchise. He was affiliated with the Jaws 2, uh, the second installment of the Jaws um, franchise, uh, he's done um, quite a few things. Um, like I said, he's worked with some real heavyweights. Um, I talked about banging the drum slowly. That starred Robert De Niro and Michael Moriarty, and um, we we enjoyed talking about that. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, he was involved in Jaws too back in 1978. He um, he just keeps grinding, guys. He, it's it's absolutely amazing to hear this guy talk during our conversation because of the things that he has done. He's 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 worked in all type of genres. He's done comedy. He's done drama. He's done everything. Uh, we talked a little bit about some a couple of projects that he had that that I actually um, when my research I stumbled across um, he there was a horror film called Wolfen from 1981 that I remember watching years ago on VHS that that we uh, chatted a little bit about. Um, he we talk about his. Uh, episodes that he directed for hill street blues which is one of still holds up as one of the greatest um police dramas of its of its day and of all days because uh like i said that was just good television back in the day we talk about his affiliation with the twilight zone the 1985 series that he had uh he played a part in he also directed a prison drama in 1987 called Weeds, which starred Nick Nolte. And I told him I remember that movie vividly, and we just had a delightful time talking about it. And he told a few stories about what it was like dealing with Nick Nolte, because, you know, Nick Nolte can be Nick Nolte. And then we even had a chance to talk about a holiday film that he made uh, really out of his wheelhouse. So he admits it himself that he just was really reluctant when he uh, got involved in it. It's a story about an eight-year-old girl who discovers an injured reindeer, and she believes it belongs to Santa Claus. Of course, that movie was the 1989 movie, Prancer. And, um, you know, we just—we had a delightful time talking, guys. We really did. Um, He got a chance to do a little name-dropping about all the different folks that he's had an opportunity to to work with. we we talked a little bit about Suspended Animation, which was a su- suspense thriller that he directed back in 2002. Um, in 1998, we talked a little bit about... Um, he he was talking about when he opened his production company called Filmmakers in La Porte, Indiana. And um, like I said, it, we were all over the place. Uh, I kind of got lost uh, in our conversation because we, we covered so much material. But when you got a guy that's been around for 60 years doing what he loves... It's very easy to get lost in a conversation with somebody like that. An absolute icon. He is. Uh, he's an OG of the directing world, and uh, we need to uh, hear his story, and we need to um, we need to be impressed with it. Because anybody that can stick with something that they love so dearly for so long, their story deserves to be heard. So, guys, I'm telling you, I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I had having it with my guest after the break, John D. Hancock. Hey guys, quick shout out to Timothy O. Davis of Ridgewood Recording Studios. His studio offers a full line of music production ranging from song demos and singles to fully produced albums. He focuses on excellence at every level of the recording and production process and will work with you for your project specific needs. So remember, guys, Timothy O. Davis, reach out to him at timothydavis.org, front slash Ridgewood Studios. All right, guys, we're back from the break, and as promised today, my guest, uh, Hollywood icon, Mr. John D. Hancock. John, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, I'm I'm doing fine. Happy to be here.
0: As good as can be expected, huh? uh, You're West Coast, right?
1: There for uh, 20, 20 years or so, and our house burnt in one of those big fires in Malibu that took four hundred houses. And mm. I moved back to the family fruit farm in Northwest Indiana. Northwest,
0: Northwest Indiana, Houston. yeah. You at one point they lost about the third of the state of California with those fires, <laughs> or at least it seemed like losing. it.
1: They keep losing. That's why we didn't rebuild because we thought, well, it will burn again. You
0: know. You enjoying your time back on the old homestead in Indiana? I
1: am. I am. It's. Uh, I missed winters out there, and uh, but now I I almost have enough winter. I've kind of used up on winter.
0: I understand that. I understand that. Uh, you have been doing what you've been doing for quite a long time now. Uh, you're you're not the youngest fellow in the world, and you're definitely not the oldest fellow in the world. But you have continued to stay busy somehow. Uh, I as I was looking through your information, I was absolutely. Uh, amazed with some of the projects you were involved with. Was that what you wanted to do from like your earliest memory? Like, like you wanted to be involved in the industry in the film industry?
1: No, I was going to be a musician. I played the violin. My father was a, played the double bass. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but when I got to college, I I uh, got interested in theater and and uh, directed a lot of theater at college and and decided that I wanted to do that instead. And I always wanted to make movies, you know, because going to movies as a kid, and you know.
0: So, uh, you say you were a musician. We're talking Juilliard-type musician? Were, were we that good, or?
1: Yeah, good, I was good. I was the concertmaster of the Chicago Youth Orchestra, so I was good. But I went to Tanglewood one summer, right before I went to Harvard. And um, I was 18. And I discovered there was a thirteen year old boy there that was maybe ten times as good as I was, oh. so that that slowed me down. I thought, ooh maybe this maybe look around for something else to do and I found something and but i i I knew as soon as I started directing, I knew that was what I wanted to do, and I've kind of pursued that in a single minded way my whole life
0: now you said when you went to college. Uh, kind of glossed over that. You didn't just go to a college; you went to one of the colleges. You went to Harvard University. So, tell us a little bit about what it was like. Now, you—you you said you grew up in Indiana, correct?
1: No, I grew up in the in the suburbs of Chicago. I grew up okay. in Berwyn and Cicero, which is, and I went to a a huge public high school there with fifty six hundred students. Okay, and no one had ever gone to Harvard from there, I don't think.
0: Okay. Well, so it
1: was. So it was a big. Uh, I was very much a public high school kid at Harvard, and there was there was a distinction between boys that had gone to Andover and Exeter and uh, fancy prep schools, and the boys that had gone to large public high schools. And I was definitely in the latter category. It was hard to cross that line, but we we ended up crossing the line.
0: So what, what, I mean, if you grew up around Chicago, you you were used to the weather, so the weather wasn't an issue at Harvard, it was just the, the social dynamic, having to, being able to find a way to interact, because that was the biggest uh, kind of obstacle you had?
1: For a while, yeah, but uh, that blended, that, that, blend that mushed together, I mean, I, I made good friends who had been to Exeter, and St. Albans in Washington and fancy prep schools. So it, it, uh, but there was always that element of the people that joined the social clubs and the people who didn't and that kind of, that was always something that kind of existed there. Um, but there were a lot of extremely talented people from, you know, there, there are some kind of very high quality public high schools in this country, the Bronx high school of science, uh, Evanston high school, North of Chicago, mm-hmm. new Trier, uh, I mean, there's one in Philadelphia that's really, you know, where uh, I, I think they take the best students from other high schools and send them to a kind of advanced one. So there were there were uh, a lot of public high school boys that were very smart, and I, I hung out with a lot of them too. You know? Okay.
0: So, yeah. So that at Harvard, where you actually you uh, you found out that your true love while you were at Harvard was the theater.
1: I did i knew it immediately as soon as i started directing okay uh, and I, I directed a lot of plays there and uh developed a couple mentors uh who were very useful when i got to new york one of them was eric bentley who was the leading critic drama critic in the country at that point another was uh, harold Clerman, who was one of the founders of the group theater and was directing a lot on broadway and they were extremely helpful to me when i got to new york
0: what time frame are we talking about? Like, what what years would you have been in college? 57 through
1: 61.
0: 57 through 61.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so, in, in 62, I did a hit off Broadway uh, that called A Man's a Man, a Rex play that really got me started. And uh, yeah, I got that job through Eric Bentley, who was one of my two most important mentors. So he got me my first three or four jobs in New York. So okay. that was a very valuable ally.
0: So, um, when you you were East Coast at that time, you had uh, the theater was in your blood, and uh, now when when did you realize? I mean, were, did you always intend on staying in the theater? Like, was that going to be your your drive, your dream, your goal? Was just going to have a just a illustrious theater run, or was the whole idea of you know the movie making and West Coast and all that kind of stuff. Did that ever enter your mind?
1: Yeah, I kind of wanted to do both. I mean, Elia uh, Kazan was my model. He was uh, he, you know, directed uh, Death of a Salesman and Streetcar and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and he, he also did Viva Zapata and you know on the waterfront, and so that was it. Was it's I, it? I always knew that it was possible to have a a double double career. It took me a while to make a film. I, I tried in 62, I, I tried in 63 to make a, a feature film and never got it financed. Uh, and then I went uh, and took over the, I was the artistic director of the San Francisco Actors Workshop and then the Pittsburgh Playhouse, came back to New York, won an obie, worked in the theater there for a while. And then I got a grant from the American Film Institute to make a short. And. Luckily I chose the right story. I uh my friend John Lahr, who was the critic for The Village Voice, suggested in New York a New Yorker short story called Sticking My Fingers Fleet My Feet, which was about businessmen that played touch football in Central Park. And it was very funny. And uh made a film out of it that then got nominated for Academy Award and CBS bought it, showed it at the halftime of their Thanksgiving football game. So that that got me my first two feature jobs.
0: And that was in what year did you say?
1: Well, sixty nine, maybe 68, 69. eight, sixty nine. I'm going to
0: go back and pull the archives. I uh, check it out during the halftime. You said it it actually played during the halftime of the Thanksgiving Day game. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. That's that's a um, that's
1: a high high audience moment.
0: I was fixing to say that quite a few folks watched that. <laughs> So um
1: yeah, one of one of them was the guy that had the money and the desire to do Bang the Drum slowly, which right. uh was my second feature. And uh I made that with De Niro and Michael Moriarty and Vince Gardinia. He was nominated for his performance supporting. And um that was ver- really well received. So uh, then I started working steadily.
0: Michael Moriarty, I love his work. Of course I, I'm I'm a De Niro guy also. Uh what what was it like working with De Niro that early? Like I mean he was he was coming into his own but he wasn't there yet. What was it like working with no, him? No,
1: but nobody, nobody knew he was going to be such a big star. I mean it was clear that he was wildly talented but you know there's such a an element of luck in this business you never know which of the extremely talented
0: people are going to. well both of those guys ended up being extremely talented of course De Niro probably has a lot more uh, name recognition but you didn't like like when you saw him on set you didn't go that's the guy like that that, but I mean would you have ever imagined that he would have you know exploded the way he did or or? no
1: but I, I knew I said to myself, "That's the guy. I'm so happy to have him." But I, I didn't have any idea that he would uh, become
0: a, such a big star. So he himself says about the element of luck, you know. Yeah. Well, I I, I interviewed a guy not uh, just a few weeks back, and he was talking. We were talking about being an overnight success, and he said, uh, "Yeah, I I would consider myself an overnight success." And I said, "You would?" He said, "Yeah. It only took me 23 years to get there." There. So <laughs> right. yeah. so um, in the midst of all this, because we were talking about this before we started, uh, you stumbled across a fella that's pretty recognizable, a guy named Tennessee Williams. How did, how did you and Tennessee Williams <laughs> cross paths?
1: Well, I'd done that hit off-Broadway, A Man's a Man, and Tony Richardson, who was a, a wonderful theater and movie director from England, uh, saw it and asked me if I would... Go to London and direct uh, Tennessee Williams's play. Uh, the milk train doesn't stop here anymore. At, at his theater, the Royal Court Theater. Mm-hmm. And um, before I left for London, I I used to swim in the on a YMCA up around where Lincoln Center is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, in the locker room, was Tennessee, naked. And uh, I went over and introduced myself, and we shook hands, both of us, with very few clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then when I, uh, when I took over the Actress Workshop, I, I did Bill train again. Mm-hmm. And he came out and worked on it, helping rewrite it. We really mm-hmm. got to be good friends then because we were in San Francisco together, and, and uh, he was having a wonderful time out there. Uh, and uh, it was a very rewarding thing, and then we got involved in several film projects together that never happened, and I worked with him on some of his other plays, and uh, he wanted to do a, a movie, uh, a biography of Rambaud, a French poet, and I, I tried to get that on for him, and, no one would uh, fund a screenplay by Tennessee Williams, which I found shocking. Uh, eventually, I, I, I did uh, his two-character play in Los Angeles, uh, and he came out and worked on that. So, I mean, we knew each other off and on for I don't know many, many years.
0: So, at this point in your career, you're a made man. You you can call your own shot. You pick it. No, up- never.
1: Can, like I still got a lot of stuff offered, yeah.
0: Oh, I was thinking, so you could just pick up the phone and pretty much name the project you want to work on at this point, correct?
1: No, never. Never? But
0: not not at that never, point?
1: No, I got sent a lot of stuff. I, it's, but I would never uh, have been able to say, oh yeah, this is what I'm going to do.
0: So, after you, uh, the theater was always part of your, your career, part of yeah. your life. The movies came later. At this point, you know, at, at that point in your career, did you have like a favorite, like some one project that just stuck out above all the rest? Or did you have a stinker that you wish you would have never maybe put your, you know, maybe put your stamp on?
1: Well, I, had, I worked a long time on weeds. Uh, my wife and I wrote it together and De Niro was going to do it. Then that fell apart and I eventually got it on with Dick Nolte. And that was kind of a dream project that uh, I had, when I was in San Francisco at the Actress Workshop I would go into San Quentin every other week and work with a drama group there of inmates. Right. And one of them was a guy named Rick Clucci who wrote a play and then we did it in our theater. And then when he got out he he uh, got his old prison buddies together and they took it on tour. And um, The tour, of course, didn't go very well because they were ex-cons and tended to revert to their various... Right. (laughs) So I thought that would make a wonderful picture, and I I spent, I suppose, 10 years uh, off and on working on that and finally was able to put it together with Nick Dalton. Well,
0: that was in uh, 1987. Yeah, because I I was uh, telling you that I remembered, I want to say it was like my maybe my junior year or maybe the beginning of my, I don't remember exactly when it was released, but I want to say it was maybe during the first part of my senior year in high school. And, uh, I, you know, me and my buddies watched it. We, we, we thought it, we found it very entertaining. Uh, and at that point we were Nick Nolte fans, you know, cause that's what actually drew us to the theater. So Nick Nolte has been known as a little unhinged in his day. Uh, what was was he was he like that? Was that part of this act that he had going on? This character he was trying to this persona? Oh, was he actually like that? I mean, what was it like to work with him?
1: Well, Nick was pretty unhinged, but we promised each other that he was going to. I mean, that neither of us would be unhinged during the work, and he was not. He, he tried. He tried to not take uh, too much cocaine or indeed any and tried not to drink and he was very very responsible on weeds yeah
0: very very responsible that's one of the yeah. best answers ever he was very very responsible
1: he was it's, he, he and was. that's yeah well that
0: project's become doing. quite a cult
1: because I mean, he's nick has serious you know drug problems yeah but he, <laughs> he managed to uh, to clean up for that period
0: yeah well, you know, and I mean, you were the guy. You could have pulled the trigger on him and said, look, if you can't do it right, you know, I can find somebody else. What you could have done is held it over his head that, look, I can get De Niro to do this if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you, you, so I'm going to say you were pleased with that project that I was, even though yeah. you couldn't get De Niro, Nolte did such a fantastic job in it. That, yeah, I
1: thought he was wonderful. And that, the whole cast was good. And my best friend was the producer on it. We had a, we had a great time.
0: So, at 1987, you had, you had Weeds going on, um, and then I went back and checked some of your, uh, your information, some of the types of movies you made, and then around 1989, I believe it was, you made a, what I would consider a diversion from your usual. You made a movie called Prancer. How, how in the world did, did you and Prancer ever become part of history together?
1: I do like to not follow a picture with something very similar. I like to change up and do something different. Well, Those are wide, widely different. Yeah. And uh, in between there, I think I did a picture for HBO called Steal the Sky yeah. about uh, an Iraqi pilot and an Israeli honey trap. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Rafaela De Laurentiis, who's the daughter of Dino De Laurentiis, who produced. Um, weeds and Laf- Raffaella was the executive in charge of production on weeds, so we got to know each other, got to like each other, and she came to me with this story about a little girl and a reindeer, a Christmas picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do a picture about a little girl and a reindeer. My wife, my wife read it and said, "You do it; it'll become a classic," and it has. Yes. So it has. Was she was very smart, and she said there dialogue is not very good but i'll fix it for you so she rewrote it and fixed it and i'm very proud of it i mean and also i we, we managed to find the perfect little girl you, you'd make a picture about a kid you better have a really good kid that's right and I, I i started by saying i will do this if we can find the right girl and we did and also i was very happy with sam elliott who was a delight to work with look
0: anytime you can put sam Elliott in a movie it's gonna be amazing <laughs> it's
1: gonna, yeah,
0: yeah. i've never seen him in anything and that's what's so funny is uh I was, it's never I, been bad i was actually talking to a friend of mine and i said yeah i said a gentleman i'm gonna be interviewing was the director of the movie prancer and uh he's and my buddy said didn't that movie have sam Elliott in?" i said yeah he said man would you ever imagine he did prancer and then I think within like three years, he did like Roadhouse or something like that. I said, I said, can you imagine Sam Elliott can do anything? <laughs> yeah. So we're, we, we make our way into the nineties and you're just rocking and rolling along. Everything's going great. You are a Steven Spielberg of types. You know, at this point you, you can call your shot, name your own project kind of deal. During the nineties, is there, is there one project you had during the, the decade of the nineties that just stands out above all others?
1: No, I, I, um, that's when we had our fire and I, I, I didn't work for about six years. That's
0: what I'm saying. You were, it, you're, yeah. that decade was so I, limited.
1: I, I had, I had scripts I was trying to get on, but I did I wasn't able to get them financed.
0: Oh, okay. So, um, we roll into the two thousands. Um, you know, a lot of folks at this point, um, you're a little removed, let's say from the, from the main scene. And then I noticed just out of the blue, you had some smaller projects going, and then just this past year, you had another project that was just now. It's in. It's completed. It's out for distribution. It can be found everywhere. What's the, What's the name of it?
1: It's called The Girls of Summer, and it's about the drummer in a country girls band. And I'm very proud of it. It's got a lot of wonderful songs in it, and it's on you know Amazon Prime and Hulu. Right.
0: It's all over. Yeah. All right. So you, I want to ask you a question because because you, you've been doing this for a, quite a while now. Uh, I'm gonna say you're you're an, a very experienced individual when it comes to uh, not only the playwright part of it, but the actual movie production part of it. Where do you see the industry headed? Like, what is it gonna? Will you will we ever see? The return to what I call the big screen experience will that ever be the way it was, or is everything going ahead like you mentioned Amazon you know prime is everything headed to streaming service?
1: No, I think they'll take over a larger and larger section of the the market, but the the theater experience will still be here i mean it's it's so rewarding to see something with a whole group of, a big group of people. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that I have with the theater experience are these multiplexes, which if they have something that's doing business, they'll play it in two or three theaters. Mm -hmm. So rather than having a hundred percent capacity or 90%, you'll end up with seeing a movie with 26 people or 40 people, right? Yeah. And especially comedies, I think, suffer from that because audiences find what's funny for each other. And the larger the group that you see it with, the more you're going to laugh. So uh, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm for the theater experience. I don't want it to go away, and I don't think it will.
0: Well, you also, um, what about the drive-in experience? Do You see the drive-in experience ever having a resurgence because of the, the, the world we live in now? No, do you? You know, I th- Once
1: there's a vaccine, no one will ever go near a drive-in again.
0: Well, I thought, I thought maybe the one good thing for the film industry might be during this pandemic that you might see a resurgence of, of drive-through or drive-ins. Um, I don't really know. Um, I'm afraid. What well, I'm afraid of, because I'm because I'm lazy. I'm I'm the guy, I'm one of those guys. That used to love to go to the movies, but now I've become so comfortable with actually being able to sit in my recliner and watch, you know, entertainment from my television, that I'm afraid I might be one of those that you that the theater experience, the the big you know big screen experience has lost because it's just too easy. In my opinion, uh, you guys are going to keep turning out content, and I don't mind paying for it. I just don't know that I. have like the idea of having to go back to the theater to watch it. We...
1: I felt something very strange on the last two pictures that I mixed. You know, the one of the big things that occurs in the finishing and post-production of a movie is, is the mix. And it's right. about three weeks of very expensive work on the sound. Mm-hmm. And I discovered on the last two pictures that I did, that the mixers were no longer mixing for the theater. They were mixing for an ideal home entertainment setup. Mm -hmm. Because an audience, you know, if you have faint footsteps that are, you wanna hear, the plot depends on your hearing those faint footsteps. Right. Right. People's clothes and an audience and the rustling of candy and just, Soak up sound. So if you want to hear those footsteps, you have to play them louder than you would necessarily like to hear them in your home. Right. Right? Because you want them subtle in your home.
0: Correct. And you want, <laughs> you,
1: and you want them heard in a theater. And I, consistently, I, I watch the mixers uh, mix for the home. Right. And I would say, you know, guys, the, you, we're never going to hear that. Or they're going to show it at the Virginia Film Festival for a full house, and we're never going to hear that. Right. And of course, they, we did and they didn't. And, uh, but should I have overruled and insisted on a theater mix? Uh, no, I didn't feel comfortable doing that either, because I thought a lot more people were going to watch this at home than watch it in a theater. Right. I mean, in the old days we used to do, uh, we, we would, um, you know, when you finished your work you play it back to monitor and check it, right? We would do that and then we would play it back through a set of shitty speakers like bad theaters speakers, yeah. or drive-in speakers
0: <laughs> right <laughs> everything <laughs> sure traveled. yeah
1: yeah so make sure that uh, you know the crucial information was was getting through with a bad system right and then make a few adjustments you know raise a little this or lower a little bit of mm-hmm. that to, to but we don't do that anymore we do it for a really fine home situation so mm-hmm. people with Nice speakers at home, like you probably, right? Are are sitting pretty.
0: Well, I don't know about nice speakers. I I was just talking about how comfortable my recliner was. Recliner. So, uh, but but I will say this: I've noticed a lot of the few times that I have gone to a theater here lately, I've noticed they're they're redesigning everything. Like I sat in a theater not that many months ago, and it was one of those kick out, yeah, kick out style recliners. It was pretty nice, no. No, uh, thank goodness sure. the movie was entertaining enough. I didn't catch a nap in it like I usually do when I'm in my recliner at home. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, what you, new projects now that now that the industry is kind of creeping back into existence again? You got any new projects on the horizon?
1: Well, it's not creeping, is it? I mean, it's we're waiting for the vaccine. But yeah, yeah I have three things I I want to do. A, I, a, years ago, I won a an OB for a production of Insever Night's Dream, a very mm-hmm. strange erotic production. I'd like to movie make a movie that. Not films that stage production, but is, I don't know, nourished by some of the same impulses. uh, It's such a funny play and I would like to do that. Also I have have two screenplays that I've just finished recently. One is about uh, idealistic bank robbers with families and a strange downward spiral where they defeat themselves. Hmm. And another one is about a Set in New York, is about a kind of disillusioned police officer who falls in love with a serial killer.
0: All right, <laughs> you said you didn't like doing the same things over. You know, You've got three
1: things that I'm anxious
0: to do. So uh, that's from a big screen. That's from a, you know a theatrical. What about the actual theater? And I'm talking about the theater district, like East Coast Theater District. You uh, could you be wooed back into that, or are you kind oh, sure. of? I'll do anything. You'll do it. That man said he'll do anything. <laughs> so, um, any any chance of you slowing down anytime soon? Like I said, you've been doing this for a long time.
1: I've been doing it in sixty years. I'm eighty one, but I I still feel, you know, I still have a lot of energy, and I'm not. I feel I'm at the top of my game. And why mm-hmm.
0: stop? And you've had a whole, you've had nearly, yeah, you've had nearly a whole year to kind of rest up with all this pandemic stuff just yeah, going on. Man, so. It's been, so, a uh, couple just curiosity questions here to end it up. One, um, was there any one actor or actress or, or anyone when you were in your theater days that you would have wanted to have worked with that you didn't get the opportunity to? I
1: always wanted to work with Meryl Streep, you know. Uh, I suppose Julie Christie. I, you know, uh, right before turning the... DVD off um, right this afternoon, I was watching uh, a picture called Demon Seed with Julie Christie that I almost did, and they offered it to me, and uh, my agent wanted uh, too much money, and so they went with somebody else, and uh, I, so I thought, gee, I better look at this. Uh, and I was a little afraid to do it because I always found her so attractive. I thought it would interfere with my marriage.
0: Oh, okay. So, well, that's that sounds like sound advice right there. <laughs> so, so I, I guess you you might have answered the, the next question I was going to ask. Was there was there that one project that you shied away from that you wish you'd have gone with? Maybe that was
1: it. So. No, no, it it wasn't. A, it wasn't that good a script. It was. I could have done it. It would have been better. Project I shied. Away. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've turned down several things that I should have done. One of them was Glory. You had <laughs> the Matthew Broderick picture, Civil War picture. Yeah, you
0: had a chance. Glory, that was a that was enormous, yeah. Yeah,
1: and uh, but the script they sent me was was kind of racist. The yeah. black the black characters in it were and I thought they won't they'll never be able to fix this, but they did. They yeah. they did fix it. So that was one. Another one was China Syndrome. They wanted me to do China Syndrome with Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, yeah. Jack, uh, whatever his name is, um, and it was a deal where I had to be exclusive. But it was a development deal, so I, I took, I took, I did another picture instead. Right. I, I wish I'd done.
0: Well, China. you don't need to be so greedy and do everything. Now, huh? I mean, you've no. been doing this a long time. It's yeah. just like I was. Uh, uh just a few months back i was interviewing um oh, Larry Hankin and i and Larry Hankin was talking about how he wanted to kind of wind down a little bit and he, i said oh so you're going to let some of the 40 and 50 year old actors get a shot at some stuff now. and he goes yeah i'm going to let those i'm going to let those youngsters work on a, on a few projects <laughs> so um uh, one and this popped into my mind as you were sitting there talking about as you were watching that movie uh, with the young lady that you thought you wanted to work with, do you catch yourself watching other projects and like heavily critiquing the effort?
1: No. I, I mostly just get swept away like an audience. So you
0: can just watch the movie, you don't start...
1: Well, no, no not entirely, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I really can. I mean, you know, film is so compelling that if you want to figure out how they did something and you, if you really want to study it and learn from it you have to watch it several times uh very interesting in this along those lines steven Stodderberg, wonderful director Mm -hmm. uh wanted to learn how steven spielberg uh did a bunch of things in raiders of the lost ark Mm -hmm. so instead of just watching it over and over he said as long as it has its own soundtrack and its color uh and its music uh I, i can't Keep a, I can't keep my conscious mind working. So he prepared a version with no sound, black and white, with entirely different music, so he could study the cuts, hmm. you know, so he could figure out how Spielberg was doing what he does. Okay. And I, you kind of need to do that because it, film is so persuasive to see how actually things are being done. And, you know, I teach directing. I teach directing at Second City and also at Columbia College, Chicago. And one of the first things that you try to get your students to do is to start to watch movies and and observe the cuts, Mm -hmm. to see how how scenes are being photographed and how they're being put together. So it's not just a seamless flow and you, you watch it and you enjoy it or you don't enjoy it, but it's... To learn how to direct you you'd need to start to see how things are being done.
0: Right. Well I'm glad to see it only took you sixty years to be able to just sit down and watch a movie and not, you know, dissect it frame by frame and
1: Yeah.
0: So um I, I can't wait to see your next project that's coming around. I, I would a couple of those plots you just threw at me, I, I would be extremely interested in watching that. Um, The Cop and the Serial Killer. I <laughs> that one kinda of got me for that caught me for a loop there. So uh look um 81 years and going strong sounds like you got at least another 20 left in you so uh i'm working at it maybe we'll see plenty of projects from you in the future hey no. and, and for my listeners guys go back pull this guy's information he's got some amazing projects that go like he said back 60 years and you need to check all of them out um i i can't thank you enough for being here today oh, It's my i pleasure. am super excited uh like i said when uh when i it was originally proposed that you and i talk. Um, I went back and pulled some of your, your stuff because I had I knew some of your projects, but I didn't know all of them. And I, so I was super excited to get the opportunity to talk to you today. So I want to thank you for taking time.
1: Okay, wonderful. Hey. Good to meet
0: you. All right. Y- you have a great day, sir. You too. And as always, guys, Wally out. Hey, guys, this is William with World of Wally. If you guys played the third tree, in your third grade play or if you played hamlet in your college production if you think you're a rising star in the industry or you want to be the rising star in an industry are your podcaster looking for a rising star in the industry check out steve joiner guys sj network you can reach him at stevesjnetwork at gmail.com he will put you together with the people that you need to be successful so remember, guys, steve sjnetwork at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s j network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner.